Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And last but not least, also brought to you by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market. If you enjoy the podcast each week, you've them to thank. And now for some news. This week, Microsoft held its 10th annual Build event and brought lots of new announcements. As is the case for so many events this year, it was held virtually. And rather than that be a detriment, I agree with Claudio Rodriguez who tweeted this week on how this, particularly as a development audience aimed event, could actually be better overall as a virtual event for the future too, because it gave developers who are living in poorer nations a chance to attend the event while they may not have had the opportunity in the past due to affordability or complexity with travel. So there's one silver lining there, and by all accounts it seemed like people were very happy with the platform that was used and how Microsoft handled the virtual event. Many people were pointing out the sign language option during the streaming, so good job by Microsoft. The first announcement made that I'd like to talk about is Project Reunion. The way I interpret this announcement is that they intend to decouple some of the APIs that applications use that are typically served up by the operating system and putting them as kind of a middleware component that could be added into the applications. It can mean developers will be able to develop with less concern about future Windows 10 releases breaking their apps and requiring redevelopment due to changes to these system APIs. Since they won't be system APIs anymore, there should be less concern. You can marry them to the application and at least decouple them from the operating system, which should be good in the long haul. The Verge suggests a big part of Project Reunion is WinUI 3, a user interface framework that allows apps to have a modern UI that can scale across devices. Microsoft is also introducing a WebView 2 preview this week that will allow developers to embed a Chromium-based WebView into their apps. WebView 2 will be completely decoupled from Windows 2 so developers can enable full web functionality without being locked into a particular version of Windows 10. It's interesting to see them embed a Chromium-based browser for this web view. And this is something I see other vendors doing quite a bit now, like, say, for example, Nutanix with WeFrame and Droplet Computing. The hope for Project Reunion in the future is that it will not just help developers move forward with confidence for future Win 10 releases, but also to possibly bring Windows apps to other operating systems, like macOS, for example. It's pretty ambitious, and it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I saw a tweet from The Verge with a provocative headline about it being the death of UWP, which is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen The Verge announce that. I don't want to bash them, though. They do some really good reporting and were by far the best source for information for build announcements. So credit to Tom Warren and the crew for their coverage. ZDNet reported on the announcement of the very first 
cloud vertical for Microsoft. Healthcare. Interesting one to target. Certainly has massive benefits, but historically healthcare companies have been pretty cloud averse due to the sensitivity and high value of their data. Though you could see some of the EMR vendors in this space are moving towards cloud and hosted solutions. So maybe the time is right. To create their Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare, Microsoft is building on top of and extending Dynamics 365 Marketing, Dynamics 365 Customer Service, and the platform tools in Azure IoT. They showcased a Microsoft Healthcare Bot Service as an example of one of the components of the Cloud for Healthcare. There will also be new built-in features in Microsoft 365 and Microsoft Teams that target healthcare and, and frontline workers are also considered foundational pieces. It said it will integrate the Microsoft Cloud with an industry-specific data model, cross-cloud connectors, workflows, and APIs to provide industry solutions aligned to priority scenarios. The Cloud for Healthcare will use a common data model for sharing data across different applications. It said it will be available in the fourth quarter of 2020. It's certainly interesting. Hopefully it won't be too late as with COVID-19, a lot of healthcare systems have had to quickly pivot towards certain solutions. The article mentions Microsoft Teams, which I bet is a play into the telehealth space, which has shifted drastically into focus. The healthcare bot service will also be pretty interesting as, as healthcare organizations have started to use bots more and more on their websites to try and handle some of the more simple admin type services of dealing with their healthcare customers. I believe many healthcare organizations already use some Microsoft products like Power BI for some of their data needs, so a full commitment to a suite of products is not outside the realms of possibility with the correct assurances. And moving away from the healthcare announcement, for the last year or so, a lot of developers have been tweeting about their love of and just the surreal nature of the Windows subsystem for Linux specifically version 2, or WSL2, as it's more commonly known. Well, things have stepped up a bit now as WSL is getting support for running Linux GUI apps. Satya Nadella seems to be continuing in the vein of embracing rather than aggressively competing against, which is nice to see. It's nice to see them embracing more uh, open source technologies and even some of the non-open source competing vendors and their solutions. So long may that continue. The Verge also had an article on Fluid, which will allow for quick collaborative editing of Office documents online through office.com. I don't mean for this to sound crappy or anything, but I guess kind of like what you get with Google Docs. You kind of already get this with Office 365 too. It's just not very fluid in my opinion, which is probably why they picked the name. They want to entice people back to try it again who thought that maybe it was a little bit clunky, a little slow, and just not very usable for real-time collaboration. Interestingly, during build, they stated this feature will be available to developers to include with other apps that they build too. That could be cool. That online collaborative feature becoming like a building block that you can use in any number of apps that you're creating. That should be interesting. Windows Terminal version 1 is now live. I've covered the Windows Terminal multiple times on the podcast over the last year as it continued to advance in its development. It is now available in the store for all to enjoy. 
I guess it's kind of like a further Linuxification of Windows, bringing multiple CLIs into a single terminal. And much like Linux-based terminals, you can get creative with it and personalize to your heart's content. If you're listening to the audio-only version of the podcast, I have a demo of the terminal on the YouTube version that you can find on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 125. All in all, if you work with commands and PowerShell like most of us do, it's worth getting the terminal. You can sort into tabs and groups, which is something that was promised a couple of years ago in a previous version of the Windows 10 preview that never saw the light of day. But I guess it does so here and now, so that's pretty cool. And personally, I think it's just nice to be able to customize that PowerShell UI that I spend a lot of my day in. Power Toys also got mentioned and shown during the conference. I won't hark on about this one though because I just talked about it a couple episodes ago, but if you'd like to see a quick demo of the cool and handy spotlight-like search feature, that was difficult to say, you can check out the video version of the podcast on YouTube. I'll show a quick little demo of that too. The biggest announcement in my opinion, which I'm sure is not the opinion of all uh, people who viewed the build sessions or even just read about it but the biggest announcement in my opinion was the windows package manager this has really great potential it's essentially an online repository of application packages that could be installed quickly and simply with short easy commands so for example winget install vs code and that will install visual code it's similar to chocolatey if you've ever used that before If you'd like to join the Insider Preview Program, I'll share a link with this episode under the reference links on 5bytespodcast.com for you to sign up. And if you'd like to contribute with some of your own packages that you create, there's a winglet-pkgs GitHub repository for submitting some too, and I'll share that as well. Aaron Parker, who created a similar evergreen PowerShell module, has an example on his own GitHub repository showing how he can generate manifests for the Windows Package Manager using his existing evergreen packages. This will all be a great boon for those in end-user computing. Steve Slater on Twitter also already posted something to User Voice and has asked for people to upvote it to get the Microsoft development team's attention. He's asking for Windows Package Manager integration for SCCM, MEM, MEMCM, and I assume Intune, uh, which he says he also assumes are in the works. I love the potential of this, but at the moment they've got some basics they need to sort out, like the lack of wildcards, the fact it's a pretty blunt instrument in terms of app names. So if you use an app name that is in the command, but also contains letters that are in another app's name, you'll have to use a different value. I actually noticed that with the Power Toy search as well. It lacks a little bit of logic to use an exact match first. So for example, if you try to install Steam like I did, it will halt and it will prompt you between two different applications. And also as suggested by Jason Pysik on Twitter, the argument to specify a specific version of an app doesn't always seem to work right now. So there's a little bit of work required. And then I think they could probably work on uh, getting that integration put in. And obviously this is also a preview, so its success might depend on our support, our adoption, and also just getting these packages 
into the repository to make it as useful as possible. Mahidi Hassan released a tool that allows you to bulk install apps that leverages the new Windows Package Manager too. He said it was the quickest turnaround on a tool that he developed ever. He got it done within three days, so thanks for sharing that. And you can find that at winstall.app. There were many more announcements from Build, but I don't want to focus too much more time on this episode. So I'll do a quick short rundown of some of which I've taken from thurit.com. And you can check out that site for more. But let's hit some of them quick. Microsoft Lists was announced, which is a new Microsoft 365 app for businesses to track issues, manage inventory, and more with dedicated apps and tight Teams integration. And for Microsoft Teams itself, Teams is getting support for custom templates, power platform integration for new automation capabilities, and new Visual Studio extensions to improve Teams app development. And in a pretty significant announcement, there's the Microsoft Supercomputer, Microsoft's partnerships with OpenAI has come into fruition with the company revealing a new supercomputer built for AI at scale. The new supercomputer is powered by more than 285,000 CPU cores, 10,000 GPUs, and 400 gigabits per second network connectivity for each of the GPU servers. So that's pretty amazing. For Microsoft Edge, it's getting the new Pinterest integration, automatic profile switching, sidebar search, and newly revamped add-ons store. And good news for those who are fans of the HoloLens 2, Microsoft's holographic computer is coming to new parts of Europe, Scandinavia, and Asia this autumn. And finally, Visual Studio Live Share. Microsoft is adding the ability to share running apps in Visual Studio Live Share, and it's also adding built-in chat and calling functionality to the development tools. So all in all, I think it was a pretty impactful build, probably more so than in the last few years. So that's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of all this in the long term. So not an announcement from build, but Microsoft have announced they will be launching a data center region in New Zealand. I tried to find a date for when it will be available, but at the time of this recording, it was not clear. But hey, it's good news for the region, so that's pretty cool. And because I may as well try to get through some of the other Microsoft-centrics news first, too. It was also announced this week that Microsoft has signed an agreement to acquire Metaswitch Networks, provider of virtualized network software and voice, data, and communication solutions for operators. Microsoft state the acquisition is to expand approach to empower operators and partner with network equipment providers to deliver on promise of 5G networks. They continue to state as the industry moves to 5G, operators will have opportunities to advance the virtualization of their core networks and move forward on a path to an increasingly cloud-native future. Microsoft will continue to meet customers where they are, working together with the industry as operators and network equipment providers evolve their own operations. So, it's clear as mud, but what you could take away from that, outside of the vagueness in the announcement, is that Microsoft have acquired Metaswitch Networks. And a quick short note from Paul Turret's site again, Microsoft planned to bring the consumer version of Skype and Teams together in interoperability. Once the integration is available, Teams users will be able to chat with Skype users and make VoIP phone calls. 
All you'll need is the email address of the associated Microsoft account. So that'd be pretty interesting. And it would definitely make it a lot more, I guess, mainstream and help it compete with Zoom that's pretty much out the gate and very widely embraced, I guess, despite its numerous security issues. We'll have to see if Microsoft are able to claw back more of that market share. And another quick hit. Finally, Outlook will roam users' email signatures across devices with the feature expected to become available in June. Woohoo! Small victories and small miracles. And another quick note, Splunk is now available on Google Cloud in beta. ITPro.co.uk state the new partnership is aimed at organizations that want faster analytical decisions from large data sets and follows on from Google's acquisition of multi-cloud data analytics firm Looker in February. The two companies plan to integrate Splunk Cloud across Google Cloud with services like Anthos, Google Cloud Security Command Center, and Google Cloud's Operations Suite. MSIX Hero version 0.7.0.0 has been released. The biggest new feature is the Apex Volumes Manager, which, which looks pretty cool. You can change the directory for storing your MSIX package store away from the default location and also migrate apps between stores or volumes. The release also contains some fixes, so check that one out. And sticking with MSIX a little bit, Advanced Installer have launched a collection of MSIX packaging process evaluations for the most commonly used applications. They have a site that lists some of the more commonly used applications in business environments showing if they're MSIX ready or not. So check that out. DNS over HTTPS is now available in Google Chrome. I've covered this one extensively over the last year. Starting with its adoption by Mozilla into Firefox, then it was being developed for Google Chrome. It's now available in to Windows Insiders. I said it multiple times now, so if you listen to the podcast a lot, you'll have heard me mention the use case that Citrix had when cloud.com was blocked in China. People got around it by using DNS over HTTPS. And that's possible because, as you might guess from the name of it, even though the, I think the abbreviation is, or the acronym is much cooler, DOE, the DOE protocol, hell yeah. But as you might guess, it's encrypting calls to DNS names, so it's basically masking the DNS name or record that you're looking up, which would allow users to get back to cloud.com, which was blocked, for example. But Google Chrome also comes with some other handy security features now, like they've added a toolbar icon that helps you to get more granular with level of access that extensions can have. There's a third-party cookie control. While in incognito mode, there's some safe browse features that have been added and more. If you want a full list of what's been added, Check out the reference links for this episode, which is episode 125 on 5bytespodcast.com. I'll include it. HPE's storage revenues declined by 18% in the first quarter of 2020. They state that component shortages and supply chain disruptions related to COVID-19 impacted their ability to fulfill customer demand. Blockandfiles.com reports suggest it will be interesting to see how Dell's Q1 results look when they are released, but I could say anecdotally, 
it has been pretty difficult to get SSDs and NVMe drives from resellers and enterprise sources in the last few weeks. As most of these components were manufactured in China, there's been a significant supply shortage. If anything, there's probably actually been an increased demand for drives right now, but the supply just hasn't been there. According to the article, Dell will release their results on May 28th, so I guess we should look out for that. ZDNet reports that there is a new variant of the Sarawint virus, which registers a new Windows user account on each infected host, enables the RDP service, and then modifies the Windows firewall to allow for external RDP access to the infected host. This means that Sarawint operators can use the new Windows user they created to access an infected host without being blocked by their firewall. So you better keep an eye on your firewalls. Make sure that there's alerting, I guess, if possible, for if 3389 is all of a sudden allowed. Because with this, they're able to stealthily enable it. So you want to keep on top of that. Sticking with ZDNet for this next article, but academics from Germany and Italy say they developed a new practical attack that breaks the separation between Wi-Fi and Bluetooth technologies running on the same device, such as laptops, smartphones, and tablets. It's called Spectra. The attack works against combo chips, which are specialized chips that handle multiple types of radio wave-based wireless communication, such as Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, LTE, and others. Exploiting Spectra requires attacking a combo chip with malformed wireless traffic and then attacking the chip interface between the two technologies. Results vary, but the research team says that certain scenarios are possible following a Spectra attack. Researchers analyzed only Broadcom and Cypress chips for their work. Klassen and Grigoli say that other combo chip set manufacturers are most likely vulnerable to Spectra attacks as well. At this time, no additional technical details about the attack have been made public, which is probably a good thing. It may give these manufacturers a chance to catch up and remedy the problem if possible before this is made public. Joel at ControlUp shared a blog post this week detailing some of the new metrics monitored with ControlUp version 8.1.5, which was just released. This includes active application name, titles, and URLs. He shows examples of how you can leverage ControlUp's automated actions and alerting together with these new metrics. For example, to message a user who tries to launch a URL and say IE that will only work in Chrome or vice versa. You can force the redirect if that's what you want to do or maybe get a little, give the user a little bit of a nudge. Personally, I could think of some other ways to use this too that could make it very handy for me. So I'm looking forward to upgrading to 8.1.5 pretty soon. It was announced this week that Ron Oglesby has joined VMware's EUC CTO office as an architect. If you work in end-user computing, you'll undoubtedly have heard of or at least seen Ron's work. He's published multiple books in the past, and in my opinion, during his time with Unidesk, he put together the best set of tutorial videos of any product that I have ever seen. Of course, he's more than just some guy who makes tutorial videos, but his dedication to constantly keeping that stuff up to date and being so detailed didn't go unnoticed by me. 
Also, I really enjoyed how he always ended his webinars about five minutes before the actual end time to respect people's time and to ensure that they weren't late for their next meetings. That's probably his strict military-type discipline that I don't have. But I just want to say congrats to Ron and a massive congrats to VMware because it's quite the get. And now for this episode, scripts, tips, and tricks. So to start, I don't feature every blog post that I publish on this podcast, but to toot my own horn, I published a blog post on Citrix Cloud versus Windows Virtual Desktop this week, and I'm pretty proud of it. I didn't intend for it to be a one versus the other type of blog post when I started it, but it seemed more natural to look at the different layers of the products and talk about each, so that's kind of what it ended up being. If you'd like to check that out, I'll share a link with this episode again, which is episode 125, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. As you will, everything else that I mentioned on the podcast, including the rest of the scripts, tricks, and tips that I'm about to cover. Including one of my fellow Irish, Wendy Gay, who's an awesome Citrite based in Dublin, posted a blog on setting vertical load balancing for your VDAs, which is pretty interesting with the idea being when running a load in the cloud, you want to ensure only the load you want to run there does, as it's pretty costly to just rely on a least load type of load balancing that just sprays users out as seen fit to completely level load in the load balancing. If you're working with Citrix Cloud, this is one you'll definitely want to look at to keep only the number of users that you expect and want to support in Citrix Cloud up in the cloud and maybe some others on-prem or between different sites at least. If you've been one of those who have rushed to Teams during these trying times, there's a really great tutorial video on how you can set up and configure a custom lobby page for people waiting to get into your Teams meeting. So one nice little extra customization note to help put your stamp on your team setup. A quick reminder on something that I covered in a previous episode, but ServiceNow have made their training available for free and a bonus, you can get certified on the product by taking the exam all for free and all through till the end of June. So you've got just over a month if you want to take that course and try to pass an exam. And sure, why not? It's free. And also a quick tip, you can use Citrix Studio to edit the application settings and then add an executable file path that points to vuemappcmd.exe if you're a workspace environment manager customer. This exe ensures that the WEM agent finishes processing an environment before Citrix virtual apps and desktop published applications are started. And of course, if you're delivering some of your, like maybe user policies or different settings, or even executing some external tasks that are required to put things in place for applications to launch properly, it's probably a good idea to leverage this to make sure that users don't get in and try to launch stuff before the environment is ready. There's a pretty cool developer education tool that is launched in association with Microsoft at arcade.makecode.com. It's a nice handy way for you and possibly your kids to put together some very simple retro style arcade games and it could be excellent as a first foray into development. I mean Scratch is pretty cool too, that MIT project for getting kids started, but this could be pretty cool as well. And finally, Claudio Rodriguez 
posted a very interesting article on how to broker on-premises workloads through Azure WVD. This is really interesting and is something I definitely want to try out for myself. While I have had fun playing with WVD in Azure, I am limited personally to $150 of credit a month and I run out of it very quickly. The ability to possibly use, say, the EVD version of Windows 10 on-prem and brokering through WVD could be a good alternative because EVD is still available for on-prem. It's just not supported. It's not something you can deploy in an enterprise environment. At least you definitely should not do that. Do not do that. Don't be an a-hole because you'll ruin it for the rest of us. Anyway, it may also prove to be handy as an alternative to a remote PC for some of us home labbers. Though I haven't tried that out yet, but I'm interested to try it. Based on the steps in the article, it looks very easy to set up. And while I'd guess it's easily something Microsoft could enable in the future for customers, this is not supported today. Microsoft also are not encouraging this either. So I guess it's a case of try it at your own risk. It's probably fine for geeking out with, but I'd bet some fair use applies. If it does get abused, like I said, you could just ruin it for everyone. So... I mean, be kind. I did some, see some tweets suggesting it's kind of a, it could be akin to stealing, which maybe. But I mean, if you're able to use the brokering service with the agents installed, then eh, it's it's being enabled and it could be blocked if they see fit. So again, I'd say personally, I definitely want to try it out just because I'm curious. But fair use applies. Just don't abuse it. So it's hard to tell when I record the audio for this podcast if it's going to overrun because I do make a lot of mistakes believe it or not when I'm recording this but I get the sense this week's episode is going to be a little bit longer than usual and that kind of happens when there's major announcements coming out of a tech conference like build this week so if you get annoyed by longer episodes I know some people actually ask me to make the episodes longer but if you are one who likes the more concise to the point episodes I apologize and Hopefully, we'll get back into that normal swing of things next week. As always, thank you all so much for listening.